Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. That is the name of our podcast. I'm not changing it. But Yolanda would like you all to know that we took a run. Thank you. This is Yolanda, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So you first. What astonishes you? What's astonishing me? Well, you and I started preaching a sermon series this Sunday for Lent, uh, a series that you so wonderfully put together and have invited me to preach with you. And I am astonished. I'm still astonished. <laughs> Let me be very clear, not by the sermon that was preached by me on oh. Sunday, but astonished by the text itself. And we talked about this a little bit on our run. Uh, we preached that place in Matthew 16 where um, Jesus announces for the first time to his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem and there he's going to be handed over to the religious leaders and he's going to suffer many things that he must die and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter says, oh no, this must never happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And then um, says things like, if you're going to be my followers, you've got to, uh, if you're going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself take up your cross and follow me. And I've read those words many, many, many times over the years. And as I planned to preach it, as I started the study, I thought, well, I, I know this text. Yeah. And I found myself, and I don't even know if I have adequate words, but I found myself in the study time and in the um trying to write a sermon time, bumping up against a mystery, mm -hmm. a power that I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't sure what to preach. It's like I, yeah. in, in some way I understood it, but I realized my understanding was so small and that this is so important. How could I have not been preaching this all these years and that there's something here that is so crucial to following Jesus and that after 26, 27 years of preaching, I'm just now beginning to touch the surface of it. Yeah. And so I am, on the one hand, I am beautifully, wonderfully astonished and joyful to be seeing something, experiencing something new in the text. But on the other hand, um, in a fog, overwhelmed by the greatness of some revelation that I don't quite understand, also embarrassed that I am it, it is being revealed to my soul once again how much of a novice I am in the true things of God. And so I, I just wrestled with um, the depth and the wonder and the beauty of the text. And one illustration uh, came to mind, and I, I, I don't even know <laughs> if I even preached it in a way that was helpful to the church, but I, I remember years ago, I was watching television, and I saw this artist on the stage. And the artist had a huge canvas on stage. And all around were big buckets of paint. And the artist would 
dip his hands into, into the paint and just throw paint onto the canvas. Get some more paint and throw it on the canvas and again and again. And then at some point went up to the canvas and kind of smeared some things with his hands and, and kind of stood back. And I said to myself watching, well, this is dumb. This is stupid. And then the artist went up to the canvas, turned, turned it over, and it was like an image of Christ. And I was like, oh, wow, I, I didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me, it seems to me that it's what Jesus is um, trying to teach us, trying to reorient our minds around the cross that it's not simply that he had a cross 2,000 years ago on which he suffered, bled, and died for us in our salvation, which is true, it's true, it's true all day long. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, says the prophet Isaiah. And there is a cross for us. And it, it's like it's finally kind of getting into my brain that the cross that we wear as gold and silver jewelry that we have adorning our churches in the Roman world was an instrument of the empire to say, if you dare, if you dare oppose the empire, we will strip you naked and we will put you up on this piece of wood for everyone to watch you slice, uh, die slowly and we will, we will expose you as a loser. You, uh, the cross is for losers. And Jesus says, yeah, that's what we're doing. And so if, if you would follow me, you've got to look like a loser. But at some point, the canvas will be flipped over. And I'm, why haven't I been preaching this? Well, I mean, I think the reality is it's so hard. On the one hand, there are just so many easier places to get rich meat of the revelation of Jesus. Like I, for, for most of my life as a disciple and as a preacher, like, yeah, I'd rather learn about Jesus feeding the 5,000. I would rather, you know, have Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida and pick up your mat. I mean, there's so many rich places you can go with stories that are just, um, more pleasant. And yet the apostle with. Paul says to one group of Christians, I, know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Yep. So like, I, I get it. And I think most of us were sort of taught early on, like a theological sentence. I mean, much like the one you said, right? Like he was wounded for our transgressions and wounded for our sin. I would say the preposition translation is wrong. It's not for, but by, but whatever, not actually whatever, because I think it makes a big difference in terms of if we, are taught, as most of us in America are, some version of substitutionary atonement, this idea that God is very offended by the sin of humans and somebody has to suffer for that. And so because God's also a nice guy, he decided to take the L for us in the person of his son. And so now God's not offended by our sin, so we can just sin all we want. And I mean, like, it's just, we've been taught some like theological plug and chug math formula so that we don't have to behold the cross and so that we can use the cross, if anything, as sort of a like demonic panacea so that we don't have to um, tremble at the brutality and brokenness of the world and our own 
complicity and participation in it. And I think that's, that's what's hard. And also the cross really is um, dangerous to the powers and principalities of darkness. Like most of us are complicit and participate in systems that we know wreak death because we can't conceive of having life any other way than through these systems and also we fear what they can do to us and so a church that really understands the promise of the cross and its beauty and power is a dangerous church and so you know a church that can be bought off with cultural authority and wealth and power is domesticated and complicit and so most of our churches inoculate people against Jesus instead of actually exposing um, people to the world-changing upside-down kingdom of God that the cross begins to show us, which is the all that threatens to give us life outside of God is lying, and all that threatens to destroy us is powerless before the goodness of God. And those are outrageous and dangerous things to believe and so we we don't and that's why most of us are taught that all we have to do is believe in the cross but not actually um carry it and if we are taught to pick up our cross and we are taught actually terribly we're taught that picking up our cross and following jesus means enduring without complaint the brutality and suffering of the world and accepting it as it as if it is from God, as opposed to risking suffering that comes to us when we challenge the world that is because we know what the world has become in Christ. And so, you know, I we say a lot like the devil is good at his job. And one thing that has happened is that we've been taught to look at the cross and not see it. And so I think that's, and, and when we, we're going to talk about theological education today, and that's definitely the case in, in formal seminary training, you know, we're, we're not taught to look at the cross. Um, and so I think, it's, I mean, so my experience is just very similar. Like I was on the struggle bus big time this week. Also because, you know, we tend to go to the scholars and, you know, the books to go like, okay, help me like unpack and observe levels of meaning. And when it comes to the central command of that text, like if you want to, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny themselves, pick up his cross and follow me. There's not a whole lot that the scholars have to say to that because the the question then is like you alluded to like we've all been taught like the cross is something that Jesus did for all time and so you know this idea that we would participate in the deliverance of the cosmos through using the cross as a tool <laughs> um instead of a tool not you know, a, a, the ability to endure without complaining, which is, again, the way that the powers and principalities of this world have blasphemed and co-opted the cross in order to protect their own power and systems, right? So you tell enslaved people that enslavement is your cross to bear. So just bear it and don't be, don't be vengeful, don't desire anything else. In fact, 
accepted as a good thing, that's what it means to pick up your cross and follow. That is not what it means to pick up your cross and follow. But I think when, and I think, and this is the last thing I'll say, like, I think I can look at the cross and I can say really clearly, I know what I don't think. <laughs> like, I, I can look really clearly and say that is, a, I think, a yes. blasphemous, a dangerous, or just an irrelevant understanding of the cross that doesn't touch the glory and power of it. But I have a really hard time articulating clearly what I think mm-hmm. the cross is. And I think it makes sense to me Like, it is the glory of God. And so the fact that it doesn't just, like, trip off the tongue, that it it takes, it is so offensive. Um, It is a stumbling block. It is foolishness. And And foreign to us. Absolutely. Especially foreign to so-called Western Christians who have been taught to see the systems that delivers so much death in the world as being necessary and ultimately beneficial, it's really hard for us to see the cross as the indictment of the systems that we are taught to worship as of God. So like the criminal justice system is flawed and it's racist and it's essentially modern day enslavement, but but we also are thought taught like, well, but there has to be justice and there has to be safety and there's no way other than that. So that's just what it is. That's just the price that somebody else has to pay so that I can be safe and so that I can have my rights. Like we just, it's hard to conceive of a life outside of these institutions and systems that, that I believe the cross is absolutely confronting, challenging, indicting and overturned. So it's just, it's just hard. Yeah. One of the things that helps me, see some things new just the current situation our congregation is in we're struggling with our budget Um, we are serving families who are living in hotels who are struggling who are um, you know hungry we have uh, someone who is unhoused living in a tent uh, in between our property and the um, uh, Walgreens next door the drugstore next door and it's not, it's not the kind of thing you brag about. And right. I heard a story. But it is, wait, can I, can I just say one thing? Sure. It is exactly what Jesus envisioned when the church, like when he said the yes. poor you will always have with you, mm-hmm. what he meant was not sucks to suck. There's always going to be poor people in the world. Get over it. It doesn't matter. What he meant is, no, if you are following me, you are always going to have a community that centers, includes, and is in pro- close proximity with the people who are being crushed by the organizing systems and institutions of the day. And for so long, that is not what the church has been or what the church has sought or had. We've done charity, but we've not been a community with the poor, not not even in solidarity with the poor, but like, this is our community. This is who we are. We are the ones. This is our community. Mm-hmm. Heard a story recently um, shared with me by an elder in our church family. One Sunday morning, we had some first-time guests, and this elder overheard a member of the church apologizing to these first-time guests because we were small 
because there are a lot mm -hmm. of poor people around, because we have someone living in a tent. It's like just being very apologetic. And I was thinking, oh my. Right, there, there is a form of Christianity that idolizes big and impressive and prosperous and flashy, and it's so easy to be seduced by it, and I have been seduced by it, and I am seeing it. I am seeing the ways that I have led the church to be impressive to the world, and I am I'm astonished by it. I am uh, embarrassed by it. I'm grateful to have eyes to see it. But it is deeply troubling and sobering. Yeah. We were, last Thursday, we, we've moved now to doing this twice a month instead of every week, but we have a... Um, we get to participate in the bulb at the Grove, which is a pop-up farmer's market that is like a no-barrier um, market that distributes fresh local produce and, and also like rescued food. And um, and I, I mean, I know what it is. I've been a part of it before. It, I'm really pleased and so grateful that the church gets a chance to be a part of it because it does just it feels like a manifestation of the kingdom, but there's also just a way that you just get used to like, you just get used to like, Oh, I, I know I feel comfortable around people who are on the edge of a precipice, like either about to tumble off into complete vulnerability and, or, or just like, clawing themselves back up and 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 there's a way that 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 kind of familiarity and comfort is is really a curse because you just start thinking like oh well this is just the way it is and it's the way it's always going to be and like isn't it good that we can like talk to each other in this moment and share some veggies and then you move off into your life and your path and I move off into mine and this is just you know whatever and I think I, I was talking to this guest who had come for the market and they had come early because they had been there two weeks before and had noticed that, that we were really scrambling. I, I hadn't been there two weeks before, but that the volunteers, many of whom are actually also folks who, who have come for the market and have become like leaders in the market and setting it up. And that's really beautiful. But this guest had noticed that the volunteers were having a hard time, like, unloading all the produce and setting it up and so they had come early to help and I was talking to them and I was just one of those moments where I, I was present in the conversation but I was looking at them and I was also just looking at um, just that they had perfect teeth mm. and listening to them tell me their story which is very um, I mean it's the stories that you read about just you know, a healthcare crisis and a loss of job and no health insurance. And then you lose your apartment and then you're living in your car and it's just all like, boop, 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 boop. And, um, but I'm also just looking at this person's teeth and thinking, you know, there's no way that anyone's teeth are that naturally straight. 
So this is a person, I mean, I'm just conjecturing, but I is a person who grew up in a household where someone gave this person braces, right? And again, I just feel like we have this sense that, um, I mean, I hate it. I hate that I think this way, but I also can just recognize it like sinking into my psyche that, you know, people, if they are being crushed by these systems, in some way it's because they were born into a great disadvantaged position or they have, you know, made choices that have forfeited them, you know, just sort of basic stability. And, you know, again, I, I find this way of thinking abhorrent. I consciously reject it, but I also know that unconsciously it shapes the way I see the world. And it's one of the reasons that you can just like lay your head down at night and go to sleep and just sort of feel like, well, all these systems aren't so bad. And like, basically the people who are being crushed by them are just like, you know, generationally unlucky or have made a choice that, have, you know, I mean, just, it's all lies. It's all terrible. But I mean, just really struck me this day that like, why am I so comfortable living in a world where some people, I mean, and this, this person was just so um, like beautiful and articulate and kind and helpful and talking about like so grateful just to say like, you have no idea what it means. Like I don't have a refrigerator, so I can't get very much, but like to be able to get a baguette and to be able to get some brie and to be able to just have food that is not just to keep me alive is not, but it just nourishes me. Like it just, and, and what they said is it makes me feel human. And I just, I mean, it was just this really awful moment of just being aware of how this person had, you know, perform gratitude and like, I'm not a threat and I, you know, and also that like a, a, a ministry that our congregation can only find the time and energy to be part of twice a month should not be one of the only places that a person finds something that makes them feel human in this world. Right. And I mean, I just, but we've just become so just like comfortable with the great like brokenness of a world that was made for shalom and mutually interdependent flourishing. And, and we feel like, well, as long as I have the right opinion about it, or as long as I have the right political position about it, like then I've done my part and, you know, and I understand that it's not, you know, my role obviously to save the world or anyone else, but also I think it is our, um, my friend Stephanie was preaching at the Grove a couple of weeks ago and she referenced King's quote about like, sometimes I'm going to butcher it, but like creative maladaption to this world, right? Like we, both have to be able to walk confident in the power of the cross, but the power should make us maladapted to the brutality of this world that we are just so easily convinced is inevitable. I mean, if we can't be convinced that it is just, we can easily be convinced that it is inevitable. Even people who say and mean I believe that Jesus is the son of God and that God has 
raised Jesus from the dead. And yet just feel like, well, this is just the way the world is. And, you know, there's nothing anybody can do about it. So let's just toddle along. Well, let me wrap this segment of the podcast up by saying if you are listening to this podcast and you are not a preacher, I guess one of the takeaways is that, you know, we do not come out of seminary with all Bible and theological knowledge, right? We are (laughs) on a path of learning and unlearning, and um, sometimes it really sneaks up on us uh, beautifully and wonderfully. and re- reminds us of our place, uh, just as Jesus said to Peter, get behind me. We are, as preachers, reminded uh, that we are also to get behind Jesus, to follow. And even as something as central as central to our faith as the cross, we are still peering into that mystery and are astonished by it and as we as we behold it say to ourselves what exactly does this mean right and i i mean i would say as uncomfortable as it is to be like this is absolutely the one thing i have to understand and i absolutely don't and as uncomfortable as it is to acknowledge that and essentially say like i i'm trying to build my life on a foundation that i don't understand and i'm trying to put my trust in something that I can't even really behold, as uncomfortable as that is, I would say that if you look at the cross and you're like, oh yeah, I know what this means. I got it. Oh, yeah. Then that's an idol. Yeah. And so that yeah. that is, you know, what it means to walk by faith and not by sight and lean not on our under, own understanding is to say like anything that, um, that explains it to us yeah. has, has blasphemed it. And yet there still is this very real command that, not only do we, are we not just supposed to sit around and philosophize about it, like we are supposed to be picking it up and carrying it with us through life. And so what it, what does it mean to walk, like walk, which walking with the cross makes me think of, you know, halakha, like the, the Hebrew idea that like the covenant you have from God, the relationship you have for God is for walking around with. It's not for, or not solely knowing in your head, but it's, it shapes the way you live and move and have your being in the world. And so I think part of picking up the cross and following Jesus is the sense that every thing that we do is shaped by um, the tool we have in our hands, which is the cross. And I think if, if all you've ever been given is like sort of a vaguely divine child abusing theology or told that like, well, your experience of the cross should be, to feel really, really bad, like feel really guilty or feel really sad um, or feel just internally kind of benignly enslaved by debt and gratitude. Like all of those things are, are, I think, not even a shadow of actually the cross, I think, is beautiful and what it really is is the hope that God's goodness is triumphant and transcendent and still a power at work in the world today and that we as followers of Jesus 
can harness ourselves to that power, not the power to us, but ourselves to that power. And so be able to be kind of a, a canvas whereon the goodness of God is displayed in this world in ways that really tell the story of Jesus's overcoming the cross and death and being raised impervious. Was that the phrase to, to new life here right now? Yeah, that makes me think of, and I know I said a moment ago, I was wrapping up the segment, but this is really the last thing uh, that I'm going to say about it. Um, uh, what you just said reminded me of um, that old hymn from the Middle Ages, and there was a lot of bad theology coming out of the Middle Ages in Europe, but there were these mystics who did have some amazing theology of the cross, and I think of that song, um, I think it's by the mystic Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, oh my, it ends with, um, Oh, it begins, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the king of glory died, my riches gain, I count as lost, as loss, but and poor contempt on all my pride. But the hymn ends with, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And I think that's what you were saying when it comes to giving ourselves, harnessing not the power for us, but us for the power right. of the and cross. I, and to be clear, like, and I think this is another thing that like contemporary theology gets wrong about the cross. Like the cross is not transactional. It's not Jesus saying, I did this for you. Now you pathetic little ingrates owe me everything, right? It's not transactional. It is a free outpouring of transformative love that is given um, to rescue and redeem us, but not, does not exact a payment. I mean, it is not of this world, but of the 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 kingdom. And so I think I think we would say if we truly see the cross, it's not that we then are going like, okay, well, I want the salvation that it unleashes. And so this is my payment, my life, my all. It's that we say this there's nothing else that I want. Yes. To give my life to because you see that this is this is true. This is the reality. It's beautiful. It is what it's what you want. It's a it's well. I think one of the strangest places in the New Testament is the place in the Gospels where Jesus is on the cross. He's been beaten. He's bloody. There's a crown of thorns. And a Roman soldier yeah. says, surely this was the son of God. Like, wait, how, how do you put that together unless you are seeing in Jesus? And, and th I'm sure this Roman soldier had seen hundreds yeah. of people hanging on a cross. But in this person, this man named mm -hmm. Jesus of Nazareth, hanging on the cross, this Roman soldier could see God is at work. That is, and if you can see that, then that means something about the powers and principalities and systems of injustice in this world have been exposed as frauds. Right. And I think like, to that story is really important because 
I mean, either you can see it or you can't. And that soldier, I mean, I would say like it is the grace of God manifested in his ability to see it. There's no explanation for it, much in the same way that there's no explanation that Jesus just walked by some dudes on the beach and was like, follow me. And they're like, okay. I mean, that doesn't, I mean, there's just a part of it that we are like, oh, well, you should, you should have this revelation if you earn it by like working or thinking or whatever. Like that's just not, that's just not how, how it is. So it is this manifestation of grace and it is this clear, um, sign to me, tr- manifestation of the truth that that God is not a respecter of persons, and that it's not that some again like the systems we are a part of are like you you either you either get it because you're worthy or you don't get it because you're not, and you would say you know oh well the people who were part of the system that crucified Jesus like they're unworthy and they don't deserve to see whatever, and God's redemption is just destroys those that binary kind of thinking that creates all of the destruction in the first place. And, you know, anyone who is made in the image of God is, is worthy of receiving and seeing the glory of God. So it's just this grace that's beyond explanation and really offends us. And also I would say, like Jesus is very clear that, you know, if you seek, you'll find, if you knock, Mm. the door will be open to you. And so if you don't see the cross, I mean, the first step is to say, okay, I don't see it. Like if I'm really honest, if I'm not afraid of a lightning strike, then I can come into my faith community and be like, I don't get it. Like, why did Jesus have to die? Like, I don't like the theologies that I've been taught about the cross. It makes God seem like a monster. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how this worked. Like, if it really destroyed the power of brutality, then like, hello, look around. Like, it seems pretty. So I think the first step in being able to see is saying like, okay, yeah, I don't see it. I don't see anything beautiful here. I don't see anything salvific here. But but I want to, right? I, I want to see what is holy like i want to see how this is the glory of god and not best case scenario just like the utter like disgusting sin and brutality and violence of humanity i want the cross to be more about exposing what's wrong i want the cross to be showing me the goodness and beauty of god and first is saying like i don't see it yet and then to say like okay but i'm gonna i'm gonna knock i'm gonna seek Mm. i'm gonna ask because that's good. Um, I'm not just going to assume that I know enough and look somewhere else. Because yeah. if we don't understand, I mean, Paul's right. If we don't understand Christ crucified, then we don't understand Christ. And all of us, mm. you know, can quite easily, you know, edit the gospel so that Jesus is born and he comes down and, you know, he has some great parties and he does some great teaching and he does some great miracles. And then. He's resurrected, right? I mean, like all of us can find ways practically to rewrite our walk, our life with Jesus so that it is like cross optional. And the reality is like, we're just not, we're cheating ourselves of the glory of God when we don't look for it. Which is why our denomination has gone to, instead of simply Palm Sunday, it's Palm Passion Sunday because just as you have said, we can go from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, the next Sunday, and totally not deal with Good Friday. Right. But I also think if the cross is the central revelation of our faith, and yeah. it is, then it 
then then it can't just be one Sunday a year. I mean, every Absolutely. Uh, every day of our life and discipleship looks like figuring out what does it mean, not just to see the cross, but to walk with it. Yeah, and in my own preaching, the emphasis has been on the resurrection and Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And I have to, I got to come back to the cross and focus on the cross in my preaching. Yeah. 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 So what is astonishing you? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, we just talked about lots of things, so that's fine. Let's move on to You want to move on? Okay. Well, we're, then let's, let's talk what about we're what we're about. thinking about. Well, uh, you sent me an article last week from the Christian Century Magazine. Uh, for those who are not familiar with that publication, it is a mainline Protestant uh, publication that's been around for a long time. It's a... I think they would want you to say they're progressive, a progressive, progressive Christian. Okay. Very good. It's a progressive uh, Christian publication. And the article is entitled, The Theologically Trained Organizer. And it is a response to a book by Ted Smith uh, entitled, The End of Theological Education. And in this book, Ted Smith, and we read the article, let's be clear, we read the article, not Ted Smith's book, but it seems that Ted Smith in his book has argued that theological education is changing and must change, and it's changing in the direction of community organizing, that pastors need to be trained to be community organizers, that the future of, of professional ministry, if you will, uh, the future of pastors leading churches is in community organizing, and uh, that that is how we are going to um, advance the work of the gospel. I'm, I'm asking with, uh, with a sincere question mark, uh, but definitely uh, they would say uh, social justice, social change, uh, bringing... Um, underserved, under-resourced, um, uh, historically oppressed communities together uh, uh, for their flourishing. And uh, of course, that is a wonderful goal, and I think it's, it is a, a, a godly goal. I do question um, what, what seems to be the hope that if there is this emphasis on community organizing, that that is the revolution that the progressive mainline church needs. And once our pastors get a hold of that, well then, um, uh, game on, it's a new day, and um, look out for the flourishing of congregations. Well, I don't even know if they even, there there wasn't even a mention of congregations. And um, just quick, criticism of this article I don't think there was Mm-mm. one Mm-mm. reference to Mm-mm. scripture Mm-mm. or Jesus or Jesus yeah I mean I sent you this article because I for me it's just everything that's wrong with my my family <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, because this is this is our location we we are we're within the circle of the mainline yeah. and, church. And I just, I mean, I would say to 
to set the scene, like I am not an activist, but I do think that there is significant overlap on the Venn diagram between, I mean, being not just a pastor, but a follower of Jesus and public. Um, We're called to be activism. salt and light. Right. So, so I do think, you know, and it's funny because I read this article the day after I had been at a city council meeting for four hours the night before. So I, I do think that, you know, being publicly Christian is part of everybody's call as a sure. disciple of Jesus, not just pastors. Mm -hmm. Every, all of us are called to be, um, to be truthful about um, what it looks like to live out our own values. And a lot of times our own values will bring us into conflict with things that the wider culture, which in many places claims to be the inheritors of those Judeo-Christian values and says, this is righteous or this is good enough. And it's, and it's important to just say like, actually, no, like this is, this is evil. This is wrong. There's a better way. And I'm not saying that I'm it, obviously I'm not, but I, so I do really believe that if you center your life in the gospel, in the cross, you often will end up in the public square saying no loudly. Um, but this article made me deeply frustrated, partly because we've said this a lot, like I, I feel like there's this huge um, fundamental misalignment with mainline Protestant seminaries anyway that they just don't exist to serve local churches. Like, they just don't. Like, that is not why they exist. And that makes me crazy because I think that seminaries exist to prepare and train people to serve local congregations. And so if people in seminaries don't care about local congregations, then they obviously can't train and equip people to steward them, grow them, flourish them, right? And so if if the local church just becomes like the, the seed corn that you mine so that you can go do important gospel things other places, like that's just really problematic. And I think it's I just think it's wrong. And it's just funny because it's not that you, you'll go to seminary and you'll get taught, well, things that it's not that they're not relevant to the life of a pastor because they really are. Like you will be taught theology and like, I don't, I'm not wild about theology, but I understand what damage bad theology can do. So you'll be mm -hmm. taught sure. theology, you'll be taught church history, you'll be taught, um, you know, how to do biblical study, which obviously I think is really important and critical. You'll be taught how to preach. You'll be taught how to lead worship and how to give pastoral care. So you're given tools, but, but no one is really thinking at all in the mainline church. I do not think this is true for the evangelical church, but in the mainline church, people are just not thinking about like, well, what is a local congregation and what is a, a flourishing local congregation? What does a faithful church look like? I mean, I think for one thing, if anybody were thinking seriously about what does a faithful local church look like, then you wouldn't have pastors feeling like they needed to apologize because their churches were small and like marginal in the community because we'd be using all of our great biblical critical skills to be able to go, well, if these are the values of Jesus, why do we expect our churches to, to 
be aligned with the values of Wall Street or boardrooms. But we, but we have all this great critical thinking skills, but we are not taught to train them towards local congregations. It's just this sort of sense that like, they're not very important, they're not very interesting, they've always existed, and enough of them always will exist. And they're not, it's not important to think about their health and flourishing because they're not very important. And therefore, local churches are dying and many denominational leaders and seminary leaders just straight up don't care, like don't care. And so I think this idea of saying like, oh, we need to rethink like theological education is dead, which I mean, whatever, that's dramatic language. But I do think we need real thoughtful reformation in theological education. But the idea of saying like, okay, it needs to be focused on community organizing. I'm like, I mean, or it could be focused on congregations, which by the way are communities (laughs) that are making disciples of Jesus Christ who then trickle out into all institutions, all, you know, the marketplace and the military and the civic government and the neighborhoods and everywhere else, bringing this peculiar set of values and way of walking in the world that is both offensive and deeply attractive and ultimately transformative. But because we don't see, we don't see the local church. So we have to think of like, well, let's Let's remake theological re- education so it can be relevant. Oh, I know. Let's do what the moral majority tried to do 40 flipping years ago and train people to be intentional about grabbing political power. And I mean, I understand this is maybe not a generous read of the article. And I think we want to say again, we did not read Ted Smith's book. We read Aaron Stouffer's article about Ted Smith's book. So, but I think um, the truth is that I understand that community organizing is about understanding power and mm-hmm. applying it in intentional ways. And I definitely think, like, big Ted Myers fan, like, I definitely think the gospel is power. <laughs> like, I believe Romans 1, like, the gospel is power. I think that's true. And I do think we need to be intentional about how we use the power of the gospel what i don't think we need to do is go and seek um position or permission from extant political institutions um because that's not you know i think it betrays where we really think power is and it's interesting because on our run we're talking preparing to preach about the sanhedrin and, you know, there, the Sanhedrin were a, an elite institution, organization of um, prominent religious leaders and scholars in Jesus's day who had a symbiotic relationship with the political, secu- sec- quote, secular power structure of Rome. And when Jesus came down and manifested the power of God in ways that couldn't be um, controlled or explained away, the Sanhedrin saw Jesus as a threat to their own 
identity, position, and status, which, I mean, he was. He's a threat to everyone's position, authority, and status, and a threat to their ability to maintain this symbiotic relationship with Rome, which even they felt was their guarantee for safety, stability, and security in the world. And so when Jesus does something un undeniable like raising Lazarus from the dead so you know that this is a person who has the power of God you perceive that as a threat because it's about to turn your world upside down and you say like we've got to get rid of this person and you know the most generous way to read it is to say it's going to make Rome come against us and overturn our our way of life and I can be sympathetic all day long to Sanhedrin because I'm basically unwittingly a member of it but I, I do think the reality is what that, that fear betrays what you really worship and what you really believe in, which is yes. I feel like I need the power and approval and protection of Rome because ultimately mm -hmm. that's where I think my peace and stability in the world comes from. And I can sing about God, talk about God, make my money off of running my God business, but at the end of the day, to stake my life on God's ability to be righteous on my behalf, like, hashtag no thank you. I want something I can depend on, and that's Rome. And I'm not going to let God's son come down here and disrupt that for me. And so I think, like, the for me, the problem with, with at least Stouffer's article about retraining seminaries to be positions of community organizing is it does really seem to assume that the real source of power and transformation in the world are these political systems. And I believe that we need to, we are, we need to participate in them faithfully. We're, we're not, I don't believe in building a bunker in the woods and trying to be a like independent survivalist. Like I believe that we are called to be sight and salt and light in this world. And so I believe in participating in them, but I don't believe in believing in them. Right. Like the, you know, I will vote in the next election have an opinion about what is the worst outcome but if it, it goes quote my way I'm not going to be relieved and if it goes quote not my way I've grown enough that I won't despair because at the end of the day I'm trying to allow grace to reshape me enough to say that my trust lies in the maker of heaven and earth who is not on the ballot. Mm. <laughs> um, and so I'm still going to participate, but from that place, so that that means when you say, I'm going to walk into the public square and say this truth and people say, well, if you say that, I'm going to unleash all, all of our force against you, or that's going to cost you everything and say, well, I'm going to say it anyway, because this is not my ultimate sphere of, authority and honor and worthiness this is the place where i am showing up to swear my allegiance to god and ultimately it's why like i and i know this will i don't i don't say this to be controversial and i don't say this to cause people any pain but like i can't say the pledge of allegiance to the flag anymore because i don't and that's not because i hate america and that's not because i don't have like extreme reverence for the sacrifices that people have made and do make and all the ways that I've benefited from it. And I honor the purity of heart that 
so many people have devoted to the cause of America. And, but I just, I don't pledge allegiance to anything but Jesus. Mm. And the fact that I was given a faith that let me think that I could pledge allegiance to a symbol of one nation and that that had not like there was nothing troubling about that is says a lot about how deeply colonized um my exposure to faith was and also that jesus is sufficient even in the midst of that the gospel will get us everywhere we need to go which is to the feet of the risen lord who who will lead us beyond what we've been given and where we are. Yeah, here's what I think is helpful in considering community organizing for pastors. Number one, I think it is helpful to think about the outward focused nature of the church. Mm -hmm. Community organizing by definition (laughs) is is looking outward into the neighborhood, the surrounding community, not simply um, uh, a myopic internal, right. you know, family. It's just us having our church dinners and our Bible studies, and that's it. And we uh, there's kind of a a wall between uh, yep. the church and the community. So I I think that is helpful. That is good and right and holy. I think the other thing that's helpful. Um, and this is something that you and I have talked about for years, and that is uh, the the deficit that we have as pastors when it comes to being trained as leaders. Yeah. Right. So uh, community organizing is uh, it, it is it is in 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 many ways about leadership. Mm-hmm. Great. The problem, from my perspective, and you've touched on this, you've said uh, a lot of great things about this. Is that it? Um, it it sets aside the right and necessary training. I think in Bible and theology, you and I have a friend, mutual friend. Will not say her name. She's right now in seminary. She is in her second semester, and in her second semester, she has not yet taken a Bible or theology class in one of our seminaries. Right. Now, that is highly problematic. That is that is disturbing to me. But she's taking some community organizing, right? right. I, that is a problem. Right. And well, and again, it's about the needs of the institution being put before yes. the needs of the students it ostensibly exists to train and certainly the needs of... And there's a place in the article where the writer says that they held some event on the campus of Vanderbilt Divinity School with a hundred pastors and religious leaders. Like, what do you need? What would be helpful? And they said, okay, we have enough Bible studies, (laughs) right? Um, So let's, let's talk about that. One of the things we mainline Protestants are not known for is the clear presentation of the gospel. We are that that's not that's not normally our jam. That's not our reputation. If we were talking about the evangelical church, yes. 
But for us, that, that's not even, we don't even have a reputation of doing that. And so for a group of pastors to, the way the article came across, was to so easily dismiss that as we've got enough of that stuff and our churches really don't need more of that or we, we don't need to uh, drill down deeper into that, that's disturbing to me. I, I do think community organizing skills are helpful, but to say that this is, this is the, the new revolution of theological education that's going to turn everything around is a bad idea. Um, it, it reminds me of, uh, of a conversation uh, that was held recently of a group of pastors and elders in, uh, well, I won't say where, uh, but as a group of, of pastors and elders um, uh, in, in our denomination, and they were asked, what do their congregations need? And there, there wasn't any talk about their neighborhood. There wasn't any talk about reaching the people who surround the congregation, the, the, the church campus. There wasn't any really God talk. It was, well, we need better technology, more social media, um, those kinds of things. And so I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised when, in, when institutions like seminaries say, well, what do you need for the flourishing of seminaries in the future? Well, we need to train pastors for that because we are losing students. <laughs> and so we need something else to gain more of the market share of theological students, and this is going to be the thing. Well, and I will say this. So, A, I, neither of us are making the argument that community organizing is wrong or bad. Absolutely, Absolutely not. not. I, and think I think it is a helpful skill. Right, and I think God calls people to be community, community organizers, mm -hmm. just like I think God calls people to be dentists and doctors and all sorts of wonderful ways to serve your neighbor, right? So I, I think being a community organizer is holy work. I just don't think that it can completely describes the work of what a pastor is. You know, and I, well, I would just say this, yeah. like, I think what's interesting about a community organizer is that it, for, because at least within the mainline tradition, we have this deep sense of discomfort and distaste around evangelism. So we would never say like, hey, we need to reach our neighbors because we want to share the life we found in Jesus with our neighbors. Yes. We're like, we can't do that. But when we impose the framework of community organizing, then we're like, oh, well, I will reach my neighbors to organize with them for political power. And again, it just betrays what we really think, mm -hmm. where we really think power lies, which is within the political system and not within the kingdom of God, which we understand as like theoretical and abstract or something we can build with political power as opposed to what God is doing in the midst of us that we are either yielding to or resisting. And so I think, I mean, I wish, I mean, I think that to make disciples in its essence, when, when that's done in a healthy way, of course it's going to create community and that community is going to be organized around the gospel and the presence of the resurrected Lord. And, and that kind of community organizing, I think, I mean, as pastor, I would think this is going to, have unleash a flourishing that is something that can't be touched by what's possible in political organizing. And, and some of that, and there will be deep overlap. Like I do think obviously in the sixties when, when 
folks in the church who were deeply connected to the gospel, like King and Abernathy, and you know, they their expression of the gospel overflowed into a direct confrontation with the powers and principalities who were codifying injustice in civic life, and they challenged it, and and God was faithful and worked through them. But I just think our takeaway from that is like, okay, well, now we can just basically sort of get rid of all the irrelevant spiritual stuff and just do the community organizing. And I'm like, look, if people want to be community organizers, I think that's great. I just think if you are in seminary, you should, at least some of us should want to be pastors and should feel like the life of the pastor is relevant and that the primary sphere of pastoral life is the local congregation and shouldn't feel like it has to be more than it is in order to be worth a life. Because here's the bottom line. People are spiritual and they are looking for spiritual communities. And if we won't be that spiritual community, other institutions will be. And how do you think Christian nationalism came to exist? Because there are spiritual communities out there that are peddling, frankly, demonic spiritualities, often in the name of Jesus. And they're attracting a lot of really vulnerable people with an identity and a place of belonging and power. And we're sitting here twiddling our thumbs being like, I don't want to be something as unimportant and humble and marginal as a local church. And you can think that, but Jesus didn't. This reminds me of the 80s and 90s when we were saying, when the church was saying the way, the new thing, the revolution in the church is for pastors to be CEOs, for pastors to be entrepreneurs, like in the business world, right? And so you, you get a lot of mega church uh, entrepreneur type pastors. and. We should have learned a lesson from that. Well, I mean, the other thing that's really community organizing is actually a more hopeful form of these existential questions than the other thing I see, which is how are we going to manage the coming wave of church property transition? And there's basically people saying, like, churches are going to die and, like, who cares? But let's make sure that we push their assets in ways that build up the kingdom of God. So let's fund, like, new let's fund young entrepreneurs of color and let's fund different charitable or philanthropic organizations with the assets from you know church transitions and i just i mean whatever i think for churches to say i want to maybe divest from some of my property and sell everything we have and give it to the poor and follow jesus in a new way like i'm not against that but i also just think you know the supposition that like very few people are going to be Christians in the future, and it's probably just us elite people who are worthy enough to see and care and love Jesus. And so we just need to manage what really matters to us. And that's not our spiritual tradition. It's our physical assets. Let's do something worthy with them and and just sort of concede that we think that our faith tradition is irrelevant too. Like it just makes me really sad. <laughs> I'm done. My rant is over. Well, I think our time is up. <laughs> I've leaned away from the microphone. I'm sorry. Um, thank you very much for listening. I really hope we haven't gone too far. We might have gone too far this week. We might you have said we too went much. Too far? No. It's, it's possible. It's inevitable. It's going to happen sooner or later. It's already happened. It'll happen again. Um, but thank you for listening. And um, if we're still here, we'll talk to you next week. In the meantime, you can check out what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church. The website is... Deridachurch.com, D-E-R-I-T-A. 
they worship at 11 a.m. You can check out Yolanda's old messages on the Podbean website. Look for the Dorada Church podcast or on their YouTube channel. Um, you can find the uh, the thumbnail is one of the stained glass windows. It's a dove mm-hmm. coming down. Spiritual power. Look at that. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing in God's church, The Grove Presbyterian Church, our website is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can find The Grove Church podcast and YouTube channel um, on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever. Wherever. Uh, Our thumbnail image is the tree. Uh, It's green tree. It has roots. And we gather for worship at 10 a.m. And um, be great if you wanted to join us. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.